This week I got to join the podcast for a conversation on leading tours to Israel, an experience of travel, study, and pilgrimage. Far from just seeing sights, however, our journeys are about a real engagement with the life and experiences of the people, both then in biblical times and today. It's complicated, tools in our toolbox, and no changing teams. This week on A Rabbi and Two Pastors Walked In. Today we are together uh, with Kevin, and Kevin is Danielle's husband. He hasn't been part of the podcast yet, and we invited him. Kevin and uh, Danielle just came back from leading a tour to Israel, uh, of a Christian tour to Israel, and uh, wanted to catch them while they're still radioactive with the experience, uh, having been there on Israel's 70th birthday. So, so yeah, we just returned from the 10th anniversary tour of leading tours in Israel. We started leading independent tours in 2008. Our first time in Israel was in 2007, and then started that process of studying and preparing and getting ready to lead study tours. And so we've just finished our 10th year of doing that. And last year, REU and I led one together for Jews and Christians. Yep. And uh, this one was, yep, all, all Christians on this tour. And also in a really fun way, mostly women, um, which was a great 90%. (laughs) What's mostly fun about? (laughs) Well, I would say that for me growing up, a lot of times um, as a woman who wanted to be a pastor, there was this idea of, well, you can't be a pastor, but you're welcome to work with the women and the children. Uh And so there's a tendency to look down upon women's ministry or decide that women's ministry is about either mothering or how to be a good wife or how to make a great pot of tea. Um, And so a lot of that's been uncomfortable for me for a long time. But to walk around the land and do six to eight miles of hiking a day with these really dedicated, hardcore women (laughs) who, who hiked and studied and worked hard, that's women's ministry. And it was, it was fun to be there all together. In addition to, of course, our, um, the the couple of men, Kevin being one of them and, and a a pastor, um, and father of one of the women that was there. And he's been a pastor his whole career. So it was, it was a really neat community of people. So I want to ask you, you were there for Israel's 70th birthday. Mm Mm-hmm. How did that factor into the trip, especially a group of Christians who not necessarily would have thought about those things before? Right. I don't think anyone actually in actually signed up for the tour because it was going to be there during the 70th, right? It was more that that was the right time of year and not too hot and not too cold and after the Passover and Easter. So it probably came as a surprise to most of the Christians to be there for what is essentially their July 4th event but for 70 years i don't think people really planned on that it was it was fun i loved being there at that time and it was important for me to be there and i was glad i was there during that season yeah i think for me it's a much more of a philosophical and theological conundrum i suppose because um in some of the circles that we run in the idea of israel as a nation holds theological weight not so much contemporary geopolitics and they don't think of israel as a 
people, but Israel kind of as a means to an end in like Christian eschatology, which is the idea of... That is, if Israel's there, then it's a place right. for Jesus to return right. to, and then it could bring a second coming of all right. that stuff. So, yeah. so I have these mixed feelings about it, I guess, going as a Christian tour, because I'm always sensitive to the potential veneer of that thinking within the people that we may bring or the people that are there actually celebrating, which, um, you know, is mixed, mixed feelings and mixed, mixed blessings for me, I suppose. And did you uncover any of that overtly or? Well, with our group, no, I think we're pretty, um, I mean, Danielle does a really good job in uh, setting the culture and the tone of our tour, which is, which is biblical study as its primary focus. But then one of the things that I absolutely love about what Danielle has done with these tours is that there's a study of the ancient stones. So you go to the archaeological digs, but there is this deep, profound respect for the living stones of uh, the people of Israel. So we actually have Israeli friends and family, and uh, we get to see them and hear their voices. And what is life like in Israel today? So, um, so there's so many Christian tours that go to Israel that treat Israel like Christian Disneyland. And you <laughs> you show up and you ride the rides, and then you go home and you tell people, I got to be in the place where Jesus walked. And they completely um, gloss over and miss that there is a vibrancy and a life and a a really rich culture that is existing um, right alongside the archaeological digs. And um, this particular tour, we had an amazing opportunity to have one of our friends um, who's... What, what's Ari ultimately going to be doing? He's... Well, right. He's, he's one of the cadets... Um, yeah. for the basically the Israeli State Department. He's waiting for his post to an embassy of Israel throughout the world. So whether it's going to be in Africa or Europe or where he might be sent. Yeah, but he came as a non-official. This is just, that's just what he happens to be doing. But he came just to answer questions. He's Israeli and also American. And he came to answer questions about the current um, and most recent modern history of Israel, like the last hundred years, and then also the current situation. And he's very balanced and very loving and um and very compassionate towards the complexities of the issue and also towards um you know his arab israeli friends as well as he's jewish israeli and um and also to palestinians so he had he had uh, a nice balance it was really beautiful because i think again american christians and americans in general have a lot of myths that they hold about what kind of state Israel is, specifically given like an Israeli and Arab conflict. And to have him just simply share very um, calmly and matter-of-factly about the rights and the privileges um, and how the system works was, I think, was really wonderful um, for our group to get an education on all that. So I guess those are some and, and our thoughts and group reflections. was diverse. Um, theologically and ethnically. Yeah. And so I think because where we live um, in our Christianity here in North America it tends to not be found within more of the fundamentalist group, but we're a little bit more, and I, I, I always want to drop all of these labels, but whatever it means to be more moderate or progressive or whatever it is. So as a result, um, I think when you go to the more uh, right-wing evangelical fundamentalists, you find a very monolithic view of Israel and Israel as the current modern state. I think that's also true in Judaism, is it not, right? Yep. So there's there's not as much complexity, there's not as much gray, but um, in our tours and then in the groups of people that we actually bring, there's a lot more... Um, well, it's kind of interesting that when you went this yeah. time, you, you were like walking into somebody's living room who was having a birthday party. Right. 
So even you took people there to see Israel, mm -hmm. and the part of Israel they thought they were going to see was 2,000 years ago. Right. And they walk in there and find that it's very, very now. Right. And it's happening all mm -hmm. over the country. Right. Everywhere. And so they got to see people standing for... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. The Yom Hazikaron, the Memorial Day, and right. two minutes of, of just, and and you were also there for, for Holocaust, for yeah, for Holocaust Commemoration Day, where they stand. Mm -hmm. Did that have an effect on your tourists to see people just standing silently in memory that way? I mean, we don't do that in America. Right. So on Memorial right. Day in America, you know, we we have we races have barbecues. and barbecues, um, but we don't stand at attention to remember the dead. Right. And there is that aspect. The cost of the independence day. That's right. And I think uh, there were many people on our tour who commented how much they appreciated that, you know, there was a Memorial Day and then the Independence Day, that you didn't have the Independence Day and the party and the celebration without remembering. No. But on our tours and every single tour we lead to Israel, we always go to Yad Vashem, the mm -hmm. Holocaust Memorial and Museum. And we... Part of why we lead tours to Israel isn't just for the um, ancient historical understanding and archaeology and the biblical text, but we also go because I am deeply concerned that we have forgotten about the Holocaust. And uh, there were those articles that were coming out while we were there in Israel of, you know, so many Americans can't even identify what the Holocaust is and um, all of our chants of never again. And even with the current... Um, atrocities that are happening to so many around the world. I think that this, that the story of Israel, not just the ancient story, but the modern story of the modern state of Israel and the need for there to be a Jewish state um, is, is something we always teach. So it was nice to have Yom Hazakaron, the Memorial Day and Yom Hatzma'ut, the Independence Day present while we were there. And though I would add that those themes for us when we teach in Israel, particularly by the time we get to Jerusalem, and even when we're up in the Golan Heights, we try to speak to the the complexities of the area and um, and the difficulties. And I think we do this thing in, at the end of our tours of like, give us the top 10 ways you know you've been on a come and learn to walk tour. Yep. And one is that you will hear Danielle say over and over again, it's complicated. <laughs> and I think that that, that is, um, you know, we, we go to Palestine too, and we go to Bethlehem and we spend time with our friends there and, um, and we're in the West Bank. And so all of that, it, we just always said, well, it's complicated, right? And we try to give voice to the complications within the midst of it all while still holding to the, the deep love we have um, for the Jewish people and, and for the Palestinian people and for the need to... Um, to say never again. One of the things that was different about the tour that you and I led together when I was there was that I was focusing a lot on modern Israel as well as mm -hmm. other things. So we were happened to be staying in a hotel that was right next to a memorial to an event that happened in the Independence War. So I told people about that. That would not have right. figured into the tour otherwise. And so having those things together. But the other thing about... It was um, also Purim. It was also Purim, which is a holiday that... Jews even don't get that excited about in America, right? You know, but in Israel, it's parties all over the place, and people are buying costumes mm -hmm. uh, three, four weeks ahead of the event because there's going to be a whole week full of parties, Purim parties. And this year, when you were there on on Israel Independence Day, 
By the way, you asked me, Kevin, earlier when we were talking things, what is atzma'ut? I was just going to ask you that now. Atzma'ut is independence, but it comes from the word from bone. Think of it as backbone. Think of it as the ability to stand up on your own Mm. skeleton. Mm. That's what independence Mm. is in Hebrew. And uh, not that I can do what I want, but I can stand on my own. Like Uh, the dry bones. Like the dry bones, yeah. But the thing is interesting is that Israel's birthday was moved this year. The celebration Mm -hmm. was moved because it would have fallen on Friday. And a lot of it happens at the end of that day, Mm -hmm. which would have been falling into the Sabbath. And so according to Jewish law and the cousin of Israeli law, Israel Independence Day is moved back a day to Thursday. So Thursday night would be the final celebrations and, and things because of the Sabbath. We don't do that in America. Right. If the 4th of July falls on Saturday, it falls on Saturday. If it falls right. on Sunday, it falls on Sunday. Right. And uh, and so there will be holidays that will be moved, like in tax holidays or whatever else that will mm-hmm. be moved, what day would people take off. But by and large, the, the there is no overriding religious reason to move our Independence Day. Right. Where there is in Israel, and it happens quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did the people notice that? Did they comment on that at no, all? No, I don't think that they mm-hmm. even probably knew what day of the week it was by that point, right? It's a two-week <laughs> long right. tour, and it's six to eight miles a day. All you know is what time it is. Data, right, right, barely, barely. Yeah. You just know, you know when when I said there will be restrooms or meals. It's dinner, right? They all follow around, but you know, I I think uh, it was packed. We were in the old city on that day and uh, pouring into the hotel were delegations from all over the world, um, teens and youth groups and everyone wearing the same t-shirt and just mass and mass of humanity. And so I think, um, you know, they don't know any different. Our, my tour doesn't because they've never been to Israel before. But for us walking through the old city and walking through the new city, it certainly was a lot more activity. And of course, there were fireworks at night and jets flying overhead. So it was a lot of a lot of celebration. So I have a question for you, Ari. If yeah. you had been there, what would that have meant for you? What would that experience have meant? Well, it's kind of funny. I was looking at some of your pictures and I, on people running around with little boppy hammers where people bop each other on the head with little <laughs> squeaky hammers. And I haven't been there for Israel Independence Day for a long, long time. I haven't seen it here. But it, the hammer thing has not continued as much here as it has in Israel. So I, I kind of miss that. What would it mean for me? One of the things that's interesting to me is that I'm a year and three months younger than Israel. Mm-hmm. So every time Israel turns, I know exact. that's how I know how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so the, to, to these numbers grow every year. Mm-hmm. I remember when it was when I first went to Israel, it was 1970, right? So 70 goes back to 60, 60 goes back to 50, and then 48, it was only 22 years old. Right, right. You know, I was only 21. Yeah. So it was a very different kind of experience back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so to think of Israel now being 70 years old and all of those areas from the 67 war, 50 years on, uh, belonging to Israel, uh, is is a very strange thing to me. And And when you get to a certain age, it ceases to be an age. Like if it's 20, 21, 22, those are all exciting. But when you get to 70, there's nothing more exciting than until you get to 100. (laughs) Right? And then then you get to maybe 500 or whatever it is. I mean, we had a bicentennial in America, you know. But but the numbers are not huge. Because when we go, when you guys go and you tell them, this is a place that was here 3,000 years ago. 
Okay, that that number is is mind-bendingly huge. But but to think of a modern state of Israel only 70 years old is is very uh is very strange for me. So if I'd have been there, I would have been excited cuz it's another year, but um but the, I guess there's something that feels very powerful in that. I mean, here you are in a land on dirt that has been occupied um, and I probably shouldn't use the word occupied, but on dirt that has been civilized um, by by people stepped on, trod stepped upon, on, trod trampled by, yeah, by yeah. peoples. <laughs> you know, back to the Canaan, like we we're talking about seven thousand years ago, right? Back the to five, period, five to six thousand BC, some something of that. Well, sort. Jericho's the oldest city on earth, and this. at the same time, you've got a seventy-year-old nation. Yep. So there's something I think really powerful about but that is connected the, to those old stories something powerful about yeah. the two of those being connected together. Mm -hmm. And you say that those numbers aren't very big or, or that that seems very strange, not a very big number. but every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, which adds even more significance. The celebration, I think of the, the state of Israel feels much more um, honorable, I suppose, than like the celebration of other kind of births, like, Oh, here we go. Another year, you know, another year of getting older, but the, the, the astounding fact of the state of Israel, I suppose, feels miraculous every year it goes around, right? It's when we're at 71, 72, and then 80, and then 100. It's like, this is still kind of an amazing story while you're on stones that are 5,000 years old, I suppose. One of the things, since I, my first time in Israel was 1970, and the, and the country was still mostly a socialist country. The mm -hmm. socialists were running the country. There were the predominant political parties. And the economy was more socialist. And the major sources of income were oranges and diamonds and tour and tourism. And mm -hmm. now it's high tech. High tech this, high tech that. And lots of tourism. And lots of tourism. And the oranges you can barely find anymore, right? And diamonds, they go on, but they're not as significant a part. And, and so it's changed so different so much since the 1970s the country jerusalem was a little city with very few two-story buildings three-story buildings now it's got huge buildings downtown and it's a very much uh, and it's four or five times as much area mm -hmm. and this all the surrounding hills i mean i knew the place by the back of my hand and walking around and so just to see the issues that confront Israel change. The style of government, the style of mm -hmm. culture change. There was only one TV station. It was black and white, and it turned off at midnight or 11.30. And after that, if you wanted to watch television, you had to watch Jordan or Egypt. Wow. And, you know, it was just, mm -hmm. it was very weird. But, and now it's 24-7. So, uh, see the country change and become modern in so many, so many ways is, is interesting to me. I, I think I'm curious, as all of those developments happen, what happens to the identity of the Jewish people, I suppose? The, 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 th the thinking that's going through my mind is Hebrew was a dead language, meaning it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't what, a spoken language. It, right, it, was, it was, wasn't a used language for, you know, hundreds of years. When it was resurrected, the language goes through the natural changes that a language goes through oh, as, yeah. it, as it gets used. Um, and much like other languages, the more and more it gets used, the more and more it changes, the more and more it feels distant from the original. I mean, part of the reason why learning biblical 
Hebrew today is so fun and learning modern Hebrew is because there's still so much overlap. But I'm imagining that as time goes on, that that there's going to be less and less of that overlap as words evolve, as words change. As more English I'm pours curious, into it. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are as, as the you, you continue to celebrate the nation. Um, what thoughts go through your mind as with that reality of a change and development. Well, there are two questions. First of all is the Hebrew, and second of all is Zionist identity. The Zionist identity of the nation. And when I say Zionist, what I mean is that there should be a Jewish country on the ancient Jewish country. Mm. So that, that's the essence of Zionism. Um, the, it should be on Zion, not in Uganda, was one of the ideas that they possibly had. Um, and Zionism is still strong, but it's different. That is, in the days of the pioneers, or the days of the founding fathers of the United States of America, there was a big commitment to the project because it was new. Right. And everybody was really wrapped up in it one way or another. You were fighting a war, you were ducking a war. Whatever you were doing, it was connected to establishing the state of Israel. And today, it's still a matter of fighting unfortunately, to keep the state alive, um, watching the borders all the time. But because the country is not, because the country is so much more um, wealthy hmm. in so many ways uh, and, and consumer-driven in so many ways that people have a tendency to be much more materialistic now than they were back then. So... Um, that's one thing. It's certainly happening around most of the developed world to become more and more materialistic. But you still find that there are lots of... When they call up the reserves for a war, the turnout rate is over 100%. There are still people who care that deeply about, about the country. What I mean, how, how can you have more than 100% of the reserves? The answer is not everybody gets called up because they don't need everybody. And people start coming anyway. They say, my unit is going. I'm going. I'm going to come whether you want me or not. I mean, and so the last war that I was there in, in 2014, it was it was insane. People were dry. First of all, the country is small. It's like the Bay Area. And and so when you mobilize, you don't have to get on a train and go somewhere or fly somewhere. You just take your car and drive over there and get out. And so there were all these places where people had driven their cars from wherever they come from. And that was over here. And then here was the tanks and the trucks and the artillery and stuff like that. So many, 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 many more people show up. Uh, so so and, and people are still uh, volunteering for elite units, combat units, and all kinds of other things. So... The answer is that the Zionism is still alive and well, but there's a whole lot more materialism. And when it comes to language, as a linguistic purist of some sorts and, and translator and poet as I am, I like to use Hebrew. But there are a lot of words which are not used in Hebrew anymore. Um, helicopter is a helicopter, even though there's a fine word for it in Hebrew, masok. I mean, there are the things like that. So you'll find all these different words in English being used over and over and over again, and it drives purists crazy right so so to watch the language evolve in that kind of a way is also very interesting and there's always new slang that i have to learn when i go back every time so that's so i have a question then. yeah the, you've been leading tours to israel for a long time you've been going to israel for a long time and then leading tours and yep. you've lived there and studied and we've lived there and studied and have been going for a long time and now leading for over 10 years um 
why do you do it? And um, why is that something that sort of binds the three of us together? And why is it valuable? And um, Well, I do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I'm in love with the land, the country, the people. I have lots of friends. And I, it's the same reason I got to be a rabbi. I just was very involved in being Jewish. And part of being very involved in being Jewish is going to Israel. You might say that not everybody who's very involved in being Jewish wants to go to Israel because... Israeli Israeli Judaism is more conflict prone because it's ethnic and it's everybody on top of each other and who you're going to vote for in terms of dog catcher right. is is a political Jewish statement. Um and so there are aspects of of that that are difficult but in any case I go there because I I'm in love with the country. I I'm in love with the country on a 4,000 year old level right. so I walk through it like you guys do and you're experiencing the now but you're also experiencing the way back when um, my wife and I were going to move to Israel back in 1999 and uh, I applied for different rabbinical jobs and I got all of them so I was going to be a rabbi in Israel but I couldn't live on the salary they pay there because um, it's just nothing I would have ended up putting my kids into poverty. And since my wife is a lawyer and she would have needed to have gone back to school to learn right. Hebrew on a legal level and then have a two to three year stage, a, you know, an internship right. before she could earn a nickel. Mm -hmm. um, we just couldn't do it. Sure. So we had everything to do. We were going to leave everything, take everybody with the time we could do it. And, um, and then in the end, we couldn't. The practical realities of... The practical realities, yeah. yeah. I have a couple of friends who have moved there to retire now. And, um, and that's, I like to visit them and see them. And that, those are wonderful things. I, we still kind of fantasize about doing it, but we can only go there as retirees uh, with our pensions. Right. But not have to, to make a living there. Right. I mean, first of all, if I were a high-tech person, I could make a fine living. Sure. As a rabbi... And as a lawyer, and lawyers not paid the same in Israel as they are here, right. uh, it would have been difficult. Yeah, sure. So why do you do it, Daniel? Um, I lead tours to Israel because I think it is um, one of, we've talked about this before, it's one of the tools in our toolbox to helping people understand their story and their text and their Messiah, Rabbi, Jesus, Yeshua. And, and it's like a... It's like a two-week in-depth retreat, like drinking from a fire hose, seminary-level class. And sometimes, you know, you can you teach these things outside of the land? Absolutely. You know, we can sit with uh, PowerPoint slides um, at church on a Tuesday afternoon or evening and talk about the Valley of Elah where David and Goliath had their big, huge conflict. And we can talk about how the land is functioning and why the valley is important and how it impacts Bethlehem and Jerusalem up in the hill country. We can talk about the Philistines. We can talk about ancient Israelites. We can talk about that whole story. And we can show all the archaeological data. But the impact that you have when you dive in and you do that for two weeks concentrated um, feet on the ground, the feel of the soil underneath your feet, the smell, the sounds, the taste, and the community that is built, it's, um, it's just a fantastic tool in the box. So I think um, how we appreciate and understand our text and our narrative deeply shapes how we live in this world. 
And so one of the additional reasons why I want to take people is because I think that there is a sin of anti-Semitism within the Christian church. And going and walking in the footsteps of ancient Israelites and modern living stones, listening to those stories, um, understanding and owning Christian history within that mix, um, the good and the bad. I think that that's an important thing that every Christian should do. Now, it, my holy envy is in Judaism, there is a thing called birthright tours and taglit, right? Like that, that there's an encouragement for all these Jewish kids in America in high school and college to get to Israel at some point and have a connection to their story and their land. Christians don't do that. And there's even in, in many circles sort of... Um, a condescension, condescension, like towards looking down, a contempt of looking down towards people who think that it's important to understand your Bible in context or think it's important to study, that we should just be able to read it, simple words on the page and get something out of it and then immediately have that relationship with God. And uh, sure, yes, you can read it, simple words on the page and get something out of it. But truth be told, and this is A.J. Levine's quote, like, it would be nice to give the Holy Spirit something to work with. And if we do a little bit of study and historical understanding of our text, we better understand it and avoid fanciful, imaginative, and sometimes even deeply wrong interpretations. Um, I don't, I think one of the things Ari and I have joked about for many years, that the scandal to both Jews and Christians is that Jesus was a Jew. So that can be a surprise to Christians that he not just was a Jew, but lived a kosher, halakhically observant Jewish life. And so did the Talmudim, the disciples. But that, um, that that is important for Jews and Christians to know today. And that if we both knew that, there would be more life to be shared and less harm to be found within the communities, at least by the Christians who've been oppressors in a lot of those situations. This raises a question for me, Ari. I'd be curious... I think I kind of understand how Christianity evolved to become a much more individualistic. I read my Bible and it's me and God and Jesus and I I can study the text and because I can carry it around with me, um, I have a personal relationship with the text. It's very individualistic. My question is, it feels to me as if the Jewish community by and large has held on to a much stronger communal ethic of reading, communal ethic of story. Uh, and I'm kind of curious if you could answer why. Because Judaism had to go through the very same technological changes that Christianity did, right? Gutenberg's press, the proliferation of everybody individually owning their own text is the same for people of the Jewish faith as well as Christians. And yet Christianity has become, uh, at least from my perspective, highly individualized where we're having devotional quiet times or Protestant Christianity at least. Yeah. Specifically Protestant Christianity, I suppose. In North America. So why? Let me give you my quick answer. Um, because a longer answer would just be more confused. (laughs) Uh, My my quick answer is that, uh, Judaism is a thing that you ultimately do. There's a lot of doing. And so it's not just a matter of uh, what you believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's study, mm-hmm. right? But it's mostly doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, and what you believe, if you show up, that's fine. Right. Nobody knows what you believe unless you make a big deal out of it. Whereas in Christianity, since your immortal soul depended on the 
kosherness of your faith. <laughs> the confession of it, right? Well, just whether yeah. or not you were confessing the right thing. Right. If you believe the wrong thing about Jesus, people will get all crazy about you and then and assume you weren't going to the right place. So every time there was a schism or a disagreement, it turned into a fracture. Mm. Whereas with Judaism, it didn't. Didn't need to because you didn't measure people that way. And, and basically, since the overriding Jewish thought is if you do well, you'll merit whatever's next. Even if you're conflicted. It doesn't matter if you're conflicted. As long as, you, you're, as long as you're a mensch, as long as you're a good person, as long as people look at you and say, that's a good person, does good things, then we assume, and this is, by the way, this is not just about Jews. As long as anybody's a good person, we assume that they're all going to end up in the same place, which is the, a good place, right? And if you're a bad person, you end up in the other place. And one of a variety of other places. But anyway, um, but the thing is, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of getting the right thought. It's a matter of doing things as a group. Yeah. And so, and maybe there's another thing, which is this, that is, there's never been so many of us, at least not for the last 2,000 years, that we would break up that often as much. And one of the biggest, mm. I mean, one of the biggest miracles to me is that there's any Jews right, right. in 20th century Europe mm-hmm. to kill. I can't imagine that any of us survived that long having been kicked out of this place and that place and robbed and killed and raped and murdered over and over and over and over and over again with a Jewish community of 15 households here and 16 households there and 20 over there. I mean, it's like, how in the hell did we ever get through that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though there aren't that many of us and there's no real uh, percentage in fighting about it, we fight about it anyway, but we don't fight about it in the same level of seriousness. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Ari, thanks for sharing and talking and we'll have more of these conversations together and thinking about why we go and what we do when we go and um, how it continues to inform our faith here and now we have to make sure and plan our dates for our next joint for tour. our next joint tour jews and christians together for intersecting journeys intersecting journeys and the last the, the as danielle said from the last trip is we went with 20 uh, 10 Jews and 10 Christians, and we were going to come back with that number, by God. And if anybody who decided to convert, somebody have to convert the other way. Right, so. you have to find somebody to trade with <laughs> That's you. That's right. <laughs> Nobody's allowed to change teams. That's right. <laughs> Not under our watch. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on your team, and I'm glad I'm glad we're all here. Thanks Thank so God. much. And it's fun to love.